This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special interview for you today. Do I look extra happy? Do I look joyful? Do I look like I'm glowing? Because I should, because we got one of, I guess, the one of the hardest guests for me to try to secure for this show. We finally got him, and that's Vody Bauckham. <clears throat> yes, the Vody Bauckham. Talked about him a ton on the show, talked about him a bunch on social media, shared a bunch of his videos. We've got him on the interview for today. If you don't know who he is, he is a reformed pastor, author, church planner, and sought-after speaker. He's also the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Usaka, Zambia. He received his MDiv from Southern or Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and his DMIN from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and did his postgraduate study at Oxford University. He's also written a bunch of very, very incredibly important books, such as Fault Lines. A lot of you guys have read about that. That's The Social Justice Movement, Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, and also Family Shepherds, which I've talked about a lot on this show, calling the equipping of or calling and equipping men to lead their homes. And it's just a fantastic book that Ryan, who's been on the forging table that he gave to me. And that was like, I had read some of Vody's other stuff, but I hadn't quite read that yet. So it's just an absolutely integral book. But then today on this particular interview, we talk about his latest book, which is a re-release of his first book. So that's the ever loving truth. Can faith survive in a post-Christian culture? And so let me let me talk a little bit about why I wanted him on, and then we will get into what we talked about in the interview. So I kind of have a Mount Rushmore that I haven't really voiced out loud of people that I've wanted to get on my show, and Vody's one of those people. I think the way that he speaks into culture and the way that he preaches the gospel is incredibly, incredibly unique. He's, of course, written some very important books like Family Shepherds and Fault Lines and different things like that, but I've just been very, very attracted to the way that he's approached the ministry and evangelicalism and a lot of things, and I've just admired him from afar. And to be honest with you, I think the first time we tried to secure an interview with him was three years ago, if not four years ago. And I've just kind of like, as time has progressed, kind of tried this, tried that to try to secure the interview, but we finally got it done. And I'm so happy to bring him to you today. So the scaffolding for our conversation is essentially the ever loving truth, the brand new book. I do ask him a little bit about jujitsu there at the beginning and kind of what it's like being a pastor in Africa versus being a pastor in America. But when we get into the ever loving truth, we talk about how truth in and of itself is under attack in our culture, how there's this lean towards religious relativism and tolerance, so-called tolerance, philosophical pluralism. Actually, pluralism comes up in the discussion a bunch today, and it makes sense because that's where we are in this postmodern moment. But then we also get into how Christians need to draw a line in the sand at some point and say, wait a minute, I'm I'm not going to worry about people saying I'm a Christian nationalist. I'm not going to worry about people saying, hey, you should stay out of the culture wars. There's a certain point where you need to stand up for the cause of Christ. He talks about how we must preach and share the gospel into culture, and I actually ask him to give a gospel presentation, so he gives me an idea of, like, depending on the context, this is what I would say, and this is how I would present it, how as Christians we shouldn't believe that we're guaranteed to not suffer, that we we should know that suffering is coming for us for the sake and the cause of Christ, and then also, you know, you know what do we— what do we do in terms of Americans whenever we feel like, you know, our pastors, our, our megachurch pastors or our pastors that have basically sold out to the culture are going that direction? Like, what do we do as people that are just in the pews trying to to live a good life? But we do also get into this, this move or this thought that, you know, anti-intellectualism is actually good within American Christianity, but also how that holds in tension, the liberal state of some of the seminaries and kind of the, the vacillation between the two. We get into tokenism. We get into ethnic Gnosticism. There's a big phrase for you today. And then at the very end, I ask him about the state of biblical manhood, specifically in the church. And there's a whole lot more stuff that we got into. But guys, I could not have been more thrilled that we got this interview secured and how it went. And we're going to work on getting him back on early next year because we didn't even touch fault lines or family shepherds in, in this interview at all. And we just barely scratched the surface on biblical manhood. So we're going to try to get him back on to, to make sure that we can hit all those different subject matters so all of you can be happy and satisfied. But guys, I've belabored it enough here in my introduction, but without further ado, let's get into it. Vody Bauckham, we finally made it happen. Welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you didn't know I told you off air, but we've been working to try to get you on here for years. But hey, we're just another interview on your docket for today. But we're going to try to blow your socks off with our amazing questions and energy today. But the very first question I got to ask you is about jujitsu. 
because I saw a picture of you in a gi a while back and I saw like this Facebook group, like it was the, what was it? The BJJ club of Zambia or something like that. And you're one of several pastors that I know that, that train jujitsu. So I know that Joby Martin down in Florida, where you're at right now, trains Matt Chandler down in Texas. There's a lot of prominent pastors that are getting into jujitsu. So why, why are you into it? Like, this seems like something you shouldn't pick up as a hobby later in life. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And it's interesting uh, to see that happening now. I mean, uh, I've been in it since 2012, so uh, it seems like it's been growing lately uh, among pastors and other people. But um, for me, it was something that I got into with uh, my oldest son. You know, we homeschooled our kids and when my oldest son was, was uh, finally finished, I had spent the last um, four years traveling with him full time because I became his full time teacher, you know, when he got to high school. And then when he was done, I missed him. And so we started looking for things that we could do together. And he was interested in martial arts. And I didn't really like, you know, the martial arts stuff and especially all the world view stuff and everything else. And yeah. so then we found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I was like a duck who found water, man. And I, I just, I loved it. Um, I love the fact that it wasn't connected to all the other spiritual issues. Uh, I love mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, whereas other martial arts are really based on, you know, strength and power and hitting somebody as hard as you can or kicking somebody as hard as you can. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's known as the gentle art. It's about subduing an opponent with the minimum force necessary. Um, it is incredibly skills-based. So I love the fact that when I started, um, I couldn't handle most guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Even I was bigger and stronger, you know, I couldn't yep. handle most guys. So the, 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 the biblical idea of gentleness um, the biblical idea of masculinity. There was so much about it that I found incredibly attractive. The idea of discipleship, um, man, I just, I, I was, I was done, you know, and I've loved it ever since. Well, that's the interesting thing about it is because it's typically the football players, the former football players that come in and they're like, look, I'm big and strong. Who are these little guys, these nerds? And then it's just like, wait a minute. Like I'm way yeah. more helpless than I ever could have possibly imagined, but you're absolutely right. I've, I've matured so much. And even in my faith, my resilience has grown because it's like, okay, trying to figure out what this particular scripture means is not nearly as hard as getting mauled by a 16 year old. Cause we have a 16 year old in our gym. Who's like, yeah. his record's like 250 and 70. Like he's a yeah. professional already. And he's 16. And it's just like, you can't, have an ego anymore if you're going to train jujitsu. And so, you know, since I got my purple belt now, it's like, okay, we've, we've got to, we got to elevate everything and get it going. So, uh, that's awesome that you got into that. Now, one quick thing before we get into the brand new book is as a lot of people know right now, you served as a pastor in America for a very long time. And that was until 2015 when you decided to move to Zambia, Africa. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not necessarily wanting to get into, you know, the history of that, I want to know what the differences are because I've been, I live in Oklahoma. So I've been marinated in this Christianese kind of country music theology my entire life. Like just because you were born on this red clay, you're a Christian. But then the comparison for you living in Texas and South Central LA and other places in America, but then going to Zambia for all of us ignorant Americans, what are the differences between how Christianity is viewed in those two places, America and Africa? Um, well, in Zambia in particular, um, Zambia is a constitutionally Christian republic. So Christianity is the official religion of the nation written into the Constitution. Um, so whatever it is that you experience in the Bible Belt with people believing that they're Christian because they're born in Oklahoma, Texas, whatever, um, ramp that up several times uh, when you have people who are born in a nation that has in the preamble of its constitution, that this is a Christian republic. Um, so in, in that regard, uh, it's very much like being in Texas. You know, Zambia is the size of, about the same size as Texas. Okay. And gotcha. it's, it's got half the population. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting in that regard. Uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of very theological um, emphases there. Um, charismatic movement is huge. Uh, because of the way that it sort of conflates with uh, African traditional religion and African traditional worldview. So that's a, that's a much bigger issue there than I ever, you know, had to, to confront in the U.S. 
but other than that, it's, uh, it, it's similar in a lot of ways. So one thing that I've heard about uh, folks in Africa, people that have done mission work in Africa, is that people in Africa accept miracles way more, I guess, tacitly than Americans do. Because in America, we're all very skeptical and, oh, you know, yeah, I have to see it to believe it and those types of things. But because of a lot of the cultural norms in Africa, the miracles of the New Testament, they're just like, yeah, that makes sense that somebody could do that. Is that true? Is that kind of a, a good assumption about, you know, people in Africa in terms of how they view that? Yeah, I'm I'm always hesitant, you know, when we talk okay. about people in Africa because it's a huge continent, 55 countries on the continent, right. yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and in the north you've got um, Muslims and mm-hmm. and and whatnot, and then sub-Saharan, you know, you have a lot of animism, um, but you know, in general, uh, because of the influence of animism, uh, there is much more. Um, people are just much more ready to accept the supernatural. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's like that in all animistic cultures, you know, um, their, their worldview, um, is really open to the supernatural. I mean, they live with, you know, going to witch doctors so that they can mm-hmm. get witch doctors to, you know, uh, do, to, to, to perform supernatural things for them. And, and so it's just much, it's much more of a normal, uh, part of life. So because of that, you're right, um, there's a lot less resistance to the supernatural aspects of the message of the gospel. Gotcha. Well, we'll get more into the American church here in a second, but we need to dig into your brand new book, which guys, if you're listening to this now, it is The Ever-Loving Truth. So this is in the show notes. You should pick it up. The Ever-Loving Truth, Can Faith Thrive in a Post-Christian Church? And spoiler alert, the answer is yes, but you give us a yeah. couple of hundred pages post-Christian basically explain. Post-Christian, post-Christian culture. culture. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Thank you very much for that correction. And so post-Christian culture, that is where we live. That is what we're steeped in right now. But yes, yeah. there is something that we can do. And there are a lot of things that we can do as Christians to make sure that we can push people towards the ever-loving truth. And the first sentence of the book, Vody, is truth is under attack in our culture. So just give us the 30,000 foot overview. Why did you write this book? Why now? Why the fully revised and updated version? And then we'll actually dig into the content. Yeah. So like you said, this is the revised and updated version of my first book. So it's just, just about 20 years ago um, Mm -hmm. when I, when I first wrote the ever living truth. And one of the reasons that we did a revision and an update is because on the one hand, many of the things that I was talking about then have just sort of blown up and manifested in, in, in ways that were expected and some even worse than were expected. And of course, there's a lot of new stuff on the horizon, but all of it coming from the same roots and the same foundation. And mm-hmm. all of it as a result of the fact that in America, we are living in a post-Christian culture. We're living in a culture that was you know evangelized and thoroughly evangelized, a culture that was a byproduct of the Reformation, a culture that has its roots and foundations in Reformation thinking, Reformation theology, Reformation ideology, but a culture that now has completely um, not only, you know, rejected, turned its back on that ideology, but has gone to war against that ideology. And we're seeing the fruit of what happens when a culture does that. Of course, if we look across the pond and we look at Europe, um, you know, we see what that looks like even further down the road as right. Christianity is very hard to find now in, in Europe. Um, and, and Europe has almost completely paganized. Um, in the United States, we're, we're seeing much of that, but, you know, several years behind. We are behind because it's in America. If you only look at America, it's like, okay, whatever's happening in California doesn't stay in California. It'll typically spread. But if you widen it out to the wider West, it's Europe. And then it kind of devolves to Canada. And then Canada kind of flushes it down here to America is the way that it seems like it goes. But in the book, and and guys, we're we're barely going to be scratching the surface today. So get the book so you can really dig into these. But you describe how the quote unquote truth wars are being fought and how these there are these common cultural belief systems. And there's three that you you name where you talk about religious relativism. So that's, you know, all religions are essentially the same. Yep. And then you have tolerance as the ultimate virtue. 
Yep. And then the third is philosophical pluralism. And, there, you know, there's no absolute truth, postmodernism. But I want to focus yep. on the second one. Tolerance is the ultimate virtue. And what's funny about it is as soon as I read the headline in my margins, I wrote the 11th commandment. And then like a paragraph yeah. later, you, you talk about the 11th yeah. commandment, which is thou shalt be nice. So I want to read this quote yeah. from the book here. Tolerance once meant putting up with someone or something in spite of the fact that one did not like or agree with the person or idea. Today, however, tolerance demands that we not only put up with, but even embrace and celebrate the views and practices of others. Furthermore, the new tolerance demands that we value others' views and practices to the degree that we value our own. So we live in a culture now where, yes, Christians and conservatives and conservative Christians alike, thou shalt be nice. Hey, I'm going to go alone to get along. Hey, let's do pronoun hospitality. Okay, I know that you're not a man, but I'm going to use this male name and these male pronouns. I'm going to lie so as to not potentially offend you and your sensibilities. Yeah. And that has pervaded every type of culture. We're just seeing a little bit of pushback with, with conservatism, with, with Christians. But talk to me more about how this idea of tolerance, capital T tolerance, has really degraded a lot of the foundations of what we're supposed to be as Christians, but also Westerners. Yeah. I mean, the irony, of course, is that genuine tolerance actually loses its meaning because mm. genuine tolerance is meaningful within the context of a culture where you believe that there's absolute truth, where right. you believe that there's right and wrong, where you believe that there needs to be debate, right? So that, you know, we, 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 we are actually dealing with one another and tolerating one another in a meaningful way. But this new tolerance puts us in a situation where we have to abandon all ideas of truth which means we have to abandon actually the foundations upon which genuine tolerance is built. So because we've made a commitment to tolerance while basically, you know, cutting off our nose to spite our face, what we mm -hmm. end up with is a world that becomes completely intolerant, completely power and authority, authority oriented, where we use the power generally of the state to force other people to agree with us, which is not tolerance at all. And the thing is, is if you have to force them to do it, there is no genuineness to it. And the same applies for Christians in the church to where they're saying things that, like I said, they know these things aren't true, but they're saying them because they want to go along to get along. And I think a lot of people now are drawing a line in the sand. And again, guys, I'm basically skipping over section one of the book and the, you know, we're giving it short yeah. shrift because there's so much here to discuss, but section two of your book is called drawing a line in the sand. And it's, it's really a call to Christians. It's a call to arms in a way, but not in the way that people are going to clip this out later. So I'm going to read this quote here from that section. While I am not suggesting that Christians take up arms in a literal way against our post-Christian culture, I am suggesting that it is time to draw our own line in the sand. We need to make a decision. We will stay behind the line, letting the battle against religious relativism, tolerance, and pluralism overtake us, or we will step over it, standing up for the cause of Christ. So as I've said a lot, Vody, is people— That's pretty good, man. Hey, that man, I, whoever wrote that really did a fantastic job. But here's, here's the thing, Vody, is Christians and conservatives have let people kind of push them up against the wall and push a little more. And then they get to a point where it's like, don't push me anymore. See, uh, you, you won't like me when I get angry, but they never get angry. There's never a hill we're dying on. They're not going to die on the hill of protecting the unborn. They're not going to die on the hill of not generally mutilating children. They just can't find something that's worth a fight. And one day they will wake up, Vody. They will realize that the war has passed them by. They never put on their helmet. They never put on their breastplate. And they certainly never grabbed their sword. And then they're going to be looking around wondering what happened. It's like you, you are what happened. So talk to me a little bit more about this line in the sand that we need to draw. Yeah, it's not going to be. Uh, pe people are there now. Um, right. all, all the yeah. things that all the things that we're facing in this culture now, people are already there. And I, I need to back up a little bit and say that this book is is based on an exposition of Acts chapter four. And what I'm doing is I'm walking through, um, you know, Peter and John, their experience there in Acts chapter four, 
when they, you know, heal the man at the beautiful gate and then end up before the Sanhedrin. And, and I'm showing this, this parallel of what they experienced in a pre-Christian culture and how it parallels with what we experience in a post-Christian culture. And one of the, one of the things that I, that, that I point to is that neutrality is not an option. Right. Neutrality right. wasn't an option for, in the pre-Christian culture, right? These, these guys, you know, it wasn't, hey, you guys go on, do your Christianity thing. Um, for a number of reasons, they couldn't allow that. And the same thing is true today. Our culture cannot be neutral to us. And the reason that it can't is because what it demands of us is antithetical to biblical Christianity. What right. it demands of us is to not be Christian and to not believe what Christians believe. Our culture demands that we reject creation. Our culture demands that we reject the male-female binary. Our culture demands that we reject the Decalogue, right, and, and biblical mm -hmm. morality and biblical law. Our culture demands that we reject, um, you know, any claims to Christ as, you know, unique and any claims to Christ as essential. Our culture demands that we give those things up because to hold to those things disqualifies us in a culture that, you know, basically exalts these principles that we've been talking about. So because of that, they, they can't be neutral. They won't be neutral. Hey guys, real quick, if you were anything like me, you don't like paying for stuff that you think you're capable of doing yourself. So a lot of people end up doing that with their IT at their businesses. And the problem is, is if you're not an expert at it, you can leave yourself open to attacks. So I literally just heard a story about a company that DIY'd their servers and data security and that kind of stuff, and they got hacked. And they had all of their important business files stolen. And they ended up having to pay the hackers $15,000 in ransom money to get their files back. Like seriously, like 15 grand just to be able to run their business. So I don't want this to happen to the business owners in my audience. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends at LMS Tech. So LMS Tech is an IT security company that can help your business with all kinds of IT headaches. So that's network installation, configuration, security, and monitoring, server setup and maintenance cloud data storage, email management and security, antivirus management, industry specific compliance. So this is like HIPAA, financial services, insurance, credit cards, that kind of thing. And even custom software implementation like CRM and HR tools. So while you focus on making your business successful, let LMS Tech secure IT. I trust LMS Tech with the security for my business here at Undaunted Life, so I think you should give them a shot as well. So, to receive your free IT and data security assessment, visit this website, getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech. Don't risk your data ending up in the wrong hands. Invite the experts in to protect your business. Again, the site is getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech to get your free assessment. The links to all of that will be in the show notes as well. Well, and they've got the the labels ready made, bigot, small minded, like conservative as, and they're using that as almost like a curse word type of a thing. But you're absolutely right. It's we're shaking hands with the devil thinking we're making nice with culture. And it's like, look, culture is going to chew you up and spit you out and not even think twice about it. And most Christians are just like, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to be nice. And one thing that you talk about in the book and, you, and you're very fervent about it, which is no surprise because you're a preacher, is you talk about the fact that we as Christians must preach. It is not an option. We must preach. And the, the thing is, is how we share the gospel though, is we've almost been taught to share it in a way where it needs help. You actually have a small quote in the book where it says, for some reason, we have bought into the idea that the gospel needs help. And I'm reminded of something that you said, I, I don't remember when, but you were talking about, you know, how father was walking his son through a strawberry patch and he's eating strawberries and he gets the taste of the real thing. But then he started feeding his son the artificial yeah. version, Pop-Tarts and soda and all this stuff, so much so that he got used to the artificial that when he went back to the strawberry patch, the real strawberries weren't sweet enough. So what is it about how we've been taught or inculcated into this ideology where we think the gospel in and of itself isn't good enough? Maybe we need to soften it or sweeten it or do something to alter it in some way. Yeah. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul basically gives this call to Timothy to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season rebuke, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction. And he says, because the time is coming 
when men will not endure sound teaching, hmm. but instead they'll run off into myths, right? Yep. And they're, they're gathered teachers among themselves, right, who, who tickle their ears. I, I mean, yep. this is why. And if you, if you look at that carefully, what Paul is warning Timothy of is the temptation to shave off the edges of the gospel because we want people to like us, because we want people to like Jesus. And whatever the culture tells us in, in no uncertain terms, we don't like this about Jesus. We don't like this about Christianity. If we're not careful, our tendency is to then try to present the gospel in a way that we downplay the things that the culture has told us that they don't like. But what the culture is telling us that they don't like is the essence of the gospel itself. Right. And so we, we go shaving off here and shaving off there, and eventually our gospel is no gospel at all. And so now what people are doing is basically, here's how we share the gospel. Listen, your life right now is probably at a four or five on the happiness meter. If you come to Jesus, I can get you up to seven, eight, nine. Oh, right. Yes. Um, yeah. And basically, that's the way we share the gospel. We don't talk to people about sin. You know, we don't talk to people about judgment. We don't talk to people about penal substitutionary atonement. You know, Christ dying for sin once for we, we we don't talk about that because our culture has told us that it doesn't like that. It doesn't appreciate that. And even worse, it's offended by that. And therefore, because we want people to like us and we want people to like Jesus. We shave off those parts of the gospel, which means our gospel is no longer a gospel at all. Oh, and in modernity, we love competing in the offense Olympics. And it's like, oh, who can be the most offended? This is going to give you the most unearned moral superiority. I want to skip actually now because we're talking about the gospel. I want to skip to section three and then I want to bounce back to section two. But in section three, you have a, a section header called what shall we say? And simply, why should we? trust the Bible in its modern form? Is is it truly the word of God? And, you know, we, we get into all the objections, but what I want is from you, because you've done this a million times, to the listeners out there right now that are fervently wanting to share the gospel, but they don't know how to, right? Give us a gospel presentation in its full-throatedness that we could put into our own words to share with the lost people that are around us. Yeah, I always like to get to the kind of meta-narrative, and it's sort of what Paul uses on Mars Hill, right? And I, I like it because it's very easy for us to remember. There's, there's, there's four things for us to remember. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? There is a God who created the world. And you just you personalize this, right? Hmm. But creation, there's a God who created the world, right? He, he, he is... God. Um, fall. Man fell into sin. Man that God created in his image and in his likeness um, rebelled against God and fell into sin. Um, and because of that, there is judgment. His holy and righteous God uh, will judge us, must judge us. Um, redemption. Um, God sent his son and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to pay the price that we owed for our sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? Um, and then consummation. God has set a day on which he will come and he will judge. Um, therefore, repent so that you can experience salvation and not judgment. Now, again, we, if we can just remember those four things, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, um, then, then we can we can share the gospel, and the beautiful thing about that, the reason I like you know sort of giving people that framework, is because to the degree that you grow in your understanding, and to the degree that you have time with people, I mean you can flesh that out with right. so much scripture and with so much you know doctrine and with so much theology, or you can very quickly in a couple of minutes give somebody, you know, the sort of one, two, three, four of, of the gospel, you know, without sort of, you know, watering it down. Um, so for me, that's, that's, that's what I like to encourage people with. That's great. I appreciate that. And you made the exact point is you have to let 
how you share the gospel be contextual to who you're talking about. And, you know, if this is a stranger in the airport, it's going to be a different presentation than someone you grew up with that you've kind of seen their family and know their struggles. And, you know, I've taken people through books where it's like for months and months and months, we would go through, you know, like the reason for God by Tim Keller. People have, some people like Tim Keller, some people don't, but that book is really accessible for somebody that has no understanding of scripture or anything. They haven't even entered into those conversations before. And then you can start getting into things that are, a little bit weightier and meatier, right? But something that I have seen as well, and it's kind of like a, this I don't know, like this church camp phenomenon to where it's like, you know, uh, I don't need to preach, I'm gonna let people witness me by my oh, lifestyle, and Lord. I'm gonna witness for Christ. And you address that in the book, but oh. I think it, I think it goes safe, back, safe practice to, of Assisi, right? That, that's it, that, that's exactly. <laughs> I literally wrote that down at all times, and when necessary, use words, uh, right? Yeah. And so, the first person no. I ever heard, yeah, the first person that I ever heard kind of drag that ideology was Matt Chandler to, to mention him for a second time. But he was like, when has that ever happened in history? So you mow your lawn with a smile on your face and you yeah. know, when life gets you down. You're like, I'm going to make lemonade out of this situation. He's like, that doesn't happen that way. So, so why should we avoid that creep towards, it's almost a form of cowardice because it's like, Hey, I don't want to have that awkward conversation and cross that awkward line with my neighbor. I'd rather just give them a thumbs up every time I well, but you see, that goes back to what we talked about before. That's that's what happens when we shave the edges off the gospel, right? People right. don't like the message of the gospel. People are repelled by the message of the gospel. Um, isn't that ironic? Jesus told us they would be. Um, but <laughs> people are repelled by, by the message of the gospel. So this whole idea of, you know, lifestyle evangelism, as it's, as it's called, goes back to this idea of I've got joy. You know, I've got, you know, peace and happiness, prosperity, you know, look at me and the way that I'm on my lawn, look at me and look at my family. And here we are, we have this wonderful, perfect picture. Um, and, and don't you want that? And th- th- there's a couple of things wrong with that. Number one, um, there, there's Mormons out there who are living life that way. Uh, They're so happy. As well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what they're known for, right? Um, but the second thing is that the, the gospel and what really separates us as Christians is not what the gospel does to us or for us when we're happily mowing our lawns, but what the gospel means for us when we're on our deathbed, when we're on a, in our worst day, right? When we failed miserably. See, that's where the gospel has its bite. That's where it has teeth. That's where it has meaning, right? So the the power of the gospel is not, you know, I am in Christ, therefore I can mow my lawn happily. The gospel (laughs) is I am in Christ, therefore when I blow it, when I fail miserably, when I get bad news, when it's horrible and when it's awful, that's when I know that in spite of that, that I am in Christ. And for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? So, you know, this whole lifestyle evangelism thing, it misses what is essentially the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. Absolutely. And the thing is, is we're not leaning into the gospel. We're kind of leaning away from it, but trying to still have a finger touching it. That's kind of like the idea. And part yeah. of it, I think, is because we're so terrified of suffering. We, we live in a bubble wrapped world where we don't have to go and track and hunt and kill the animal and drag it back to the village. We can just go to the store and buy the animal in cellophane already. And we don't even have to think about the fact that it was once alive. But you talk about yeah. that in section two to pop back to section two of the book, the joy of suffering in his or the joy of sharing in his suffering. Okay. So I want to read this quote from that section. The reason many of us struggle with suffering is that we don't view it from the proper perspective. Our culture has painted a picture of suffering that places it outside the arena of Christian experience. We have somehow brought into the myth that belonging to Christ is the equivalent of purchasing a get out of free suffering or get out of suffering free card. But this belief is simply not true. The Bible paints a picture of suffering that is quite different. In fact, the New Testament promises suffering to those who follow Christ. Literally just yesterday, Vody, I was reading Matthew 10, verses 16 through 25, basically. It's, hey, hey, this is Jesus saying, suffering's guaranteed, y'all. So gird your loins, get ready. It's coming for you. And I had these people, like I had a friend in my life who lost his job. 
and he started questioning whether or not God existed. And I was like, buddy, you're doing this while sitting in a house that's air conditioned. You've got a cell phone. You've got food all over the place. You're overweight because you eat too much of it. It's like, what are you talking about? God doesn't exist because you have a temporary blip in in your 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 vocational life. But that's where we go. It's because we're so non-resilient because we try to avoid suffering. Whether in if you read the New yeah. Testament, you don't get this idea that following Christ is going to be an easy deal. So so where do we get the idea that it is going to be easy somehow? But again, remember what we said. We keep coming back to this, right? When we change the gospel that we preach to a gospel of come to Jesus and he will make you happy, that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that a person would hit a patch like that and all of a sudden start questioning whether or not the gospel is true. Why? Because the gospel that they believed is inconsistent and incompatible with that because they believe the wrong gospel. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. It all goes back to you know, building on the wrong foundation. I think you're absolutely right. And part of it is because, and again, you, you talk about this in the book as well for a 200 page book, you sure, you know, squeeze a lot of stuff in there, (laughs) but you talked about the, the Americanization to make up a word maybe of Christianity. And Mm -hmm. there's a short quote in the book where you say much of this capitulation to secular culture's demands stems from the fact that over the years, Christianity in America has become more American than Christian. And so yeah. this could this could get into a discussion about Christian nationalism and all those types of things. But you do say as well, and I just told someone this yesterday, and here's another quote from that section. American Christians have been fortunate. We live in one of the few societies in history that has not persecuted the followers of Jesus. So those things are absolutely true. But we we American Christians, we live in this fear of people almost finding out that we're going to be a Christian and having to like say the word Jesus out out loud. Like we we will say our normal sentence and then we'll drop it when we say Jesus and then we'll bring it back just in case, you know, someone overhears us at the coffee shop. But it's just, again, it's, it's a, it's a false facsimile of the real thing that we've gotten with American Christianity. But talk to me a little bit about this new way of fighting against Christianity in America. And that's branding people as a Christian nationalist, because again, I think you have pointed out or other people point out, it's like, we're going to be nationalists of some kind. So we might as well be Christian nationalists. Like if you have any pride in your nation, but that's used as a bludgeon by which to beat up American Christians now. So talk to me a little bit about that struggle. Yeah. And if you, if you look back at this whole idea that we started with this idea of the new tolerance, right? and the idea of relativism and pluralism and tolerance, the knock against Christian nationalism, and again, it's white Christian nationalism. Sure, it's, right. it's very important that you put the white on there because <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a neo-Marxist triple word score, right? Right, if, yeah. If the, yeah, you got, you got three oppressor groups there. Mm-hmm. You, you got white folks, you got Christians, and you got nationalists, right? Uh, so it's a, it's a neo-Marxist triple word score. And when you live in the midst of an environment that has, you know, tolerance as its, you know, ultimate virtue, and when pluralism and relativism um, are things that you hold in high esteem, then all of a sudden, the the idea that, you know, you would hold to um, some ideology, some firm ideology, and the idea that you would believe that there is a foundation upon which the culture is built and that we need to hold firmly to that foundation, that we've been blessed because of that foundation. Um, now, all of a sudden, that becomes uh, very unpopular and very unattractive. When you talk about the foundation, and so I'm struck by studying or viewing the way that old universities, universities that have been around for a while or seminaries that have been around for a while, when you look at their founding documents, when you look Mm -hmm. at the things that are etched into the stone in some of their main corridors, and then you look at how they operate now and it's like, where did we lose the thread? Like what happened again? Yeah, America's not going to last forever, but my goodness, I didn't think that the foundations would erode so quickly. So in the book, you very briefly discuss kind of the the liberal state of American seminaries because you studied at Oxford. You kind of knew what you were walking into. You knew that it wasn't Southern seminary, but but you were ready for it in a way. But then 
I'm interested in the the tension that's between, okay, there's this liberal state of America's seminaries and kind of we're looking at things through this kind of neo-Marxist lens. And then also this shift towards anti-intellectualism in American Christianity, where you have very conservative Christians saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't need all that data. I don't need all that evidence. I don't need archaeology. I don't need anything. You know what I need? I need capital F faith. That's what I need. And it's like, both sides of this coin, I think, are fruit of the poisonous tree. And I don't really know how to guide people between like, yeah, well, let's not go crazy liberal seminary, but also let's not only depend on faith as if this evidence is somehow bad or rotten. Yeah. And it, it's a great observation because we absolutely are there. And I think what we've done is we've put reason and revelation at odds with one another and we were never called to do that. So when you look at your know, worldviews, um, basically a person's worldview is is either the meta narrative, right? That that story about why things are the way they are, or you can look at the elements of a worldview: what we believe about God, man, truth, knowledge, and and ethics. And you know, when you look at knowledge, for example, secular humanism. Um, which is, you know, what was sort of predominant when I was first writing the book or neo-Marxism predominant now, they're both atheistic and materialistic. And so when you have an atheistic materialistic worldview, the way you know things is only through observation, you know, only through reason. And what a lot of people do is they go on the other side of that and they say, well, that's where they are. But where we are is we're on the side of revelation. Right. Yeah. No, 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 no. We are, we are reason guided by revelation. It's not either or, you mm. know, it, it, it's, it's not that we, that we don't use our reason. It's that we recognize that there is something beyond and superior to our reason. Right. And, and, and that is the revelation of God. God has revealed himself, yes, but the God who revealed himself also revealed himself through scripture. That That's reason and revelation, right? You know, he didn't, right. he didn't just, you know, every individual is going to get this sort of, you know, download from above. No, he gives us scripture and he gives us scripture in this, you know, wonderful, beautiful historical context. And, you know, to the degree that we better understand that historical context, we better understand that revelation. So I think the problem is that we are divorcing reason and revelation, and we were never intended to do so. I think that's absolutely true. And uh, if you do that, you you enable or, or you keep yourself from being able to discern. So when you go to the beginning of Matthew 7, which I was uh, looking at yesterday, when you're talking about judgment, it's the most often misquoted and misused verse maybe in all of Scripture where it says, you know, basically yeah. we shouldn't judge at all. It's like that doesn't mean turn your brain off because in that same part of Scripture, it's talking about trying to differentiate, you know, dogs and swine versus other people. And if you can't discern, you can't do that. And it's kind of the right. same thing. There's the, there's the tension between reason and revelation. There's also the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. You know, there's a famous Spurgeon quote that I can't remember about that, but wrapped up in all of this, Vodi, is a discussion about justice because, and you talk about this a lot in Fault Lines, which is not the point of today's discussion, maybe a point of a future discussion, but if you are an atheist materialist and you believe that we are highly evolved chimps that used to be low evolved chimps, that used to be fish, that used to be goo, that used to be stardust, nothing ultimately matters. Everything's very nihilistic. So we have to get our justice here and we have to get it now because there will never be ultimate justice where every wrong will be righted. So talk to me a little bit about how we as Christians can speak into a culture that sees justice as something that can only take place here in our current moment on our current planet. Yeah, that that is part of the problem is that we do not believe in ultimate justice. And if you don't believe in ultimate justice, then everything has to be dealt with here and now. The the other problem, of course, is the way that we define justice, right? We define justice as equal outcomes, right? Not not as the right and proper application of the law of God, right? Um, God becomes the author of justice, 
in you know Christian theism, or God is the author of justice in Christian theism. So you know we're wrong both in um, the philosophy of it and in the application of it, uh, which again is why we need to be engaging our culture. Uh, and I, I think this is, listen, a lot of the stuff that we talked about, um, these are problems, there are things that are going wrong, there are things that are upside down. But when I look at it, um, I definitely see the glass as half full. Uh, the, the reason being is, you know, that the, the light never shines as bright as it does in the darkness. Mm. And as things get darker, and as it becomes easier and easier to distinguish between those who are in Christ and those who are not, the gospel becomes clearer, right? And right. the gospel becomes, you know, more dear to us in the midst of moments like these. So I, I see it as an opportunity. And so as things get darker, one thing that we also need is we need warriors. We need pastors who are willing to step up and take the slings and arrows of culture to protect their flock. Because something I've told a lot of people about is like, look, I'm not going to have to give an account someday for how I followed my lead pastor at my church. He's going to have to give an account for how he shepherded me though. And so the onus is on him. And I think that in this modern era of CEO pastors, it's not doing us any favors here in America. You you talk about that a little bit in the book. I'll read this short quote. In many larger churches, the new criteria for pastors are modeled after corporate CEOs instead of the descriptions given in Bible passages like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. And you see these megachurch pastors that have boards of directors. They don't have elder boards. Um, they are whisked into the church. They deliver their TED Talk and their Bible verses sprinkled over the top of it so they can keep their tax exempt status. And then they're whisked out of the church. There's no, you know, back of the aisle greeting people as they leave. There's no ministering to people in the moment after the service. And I like to draw a distinction, Vody, and I, you would, you would co-sign this as well. There are enormous churches in America that have pastors that operate like they have a congregation of 50 people. They they want to disciple people and they love people. Again, a great example for me is Joby Martin down in Florida, an enormous multi-site church, and he is focused on discipling the flock and getting people saved and doing it in a way that is not leading to more franchises being posted, but spreading out the message of the gospel as far and wide as they're capable of doing it. But talk to me about this rot of CEO pastors and doing church in a way to where it's like, hey, this is more, it's like deserving of the cover of Entrepreneurism Magazine and not like a, a standard biblical idea of how we are to run churches. I think that's part of the fruit of God's blessing on the church in America. I, I think the fact that the gospel has been so fruitful, the fact that Christianity has been, um, you know, so welcomed and, uh, you know, that we live in this environment where we've been given this free reign, where the, not only have we not been persecuted, but you know, our voice has been the loudest. Our ideology has been foundational and, and fundamental. And because of that, there have been opportunities for wolves to come in among the sheep and scratch itching ears. And, you know, again, back to Second uh, Timothy 4, uh, I'm often asked the question, you know, why, why do you think these, these churches um, these, these bad churches are so successful. Uh, it just seems so wrong, man, that these, you know, I mean, if I was God, I'd strike these guys dead and I would, why, why are yeah. these things so wrong? And my answer is because the Bible is true. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. what you would expect to see if Paul's words in second Timothy four are true. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think that you know, what we're seeing is, um, a validation of God's word and at the same time, the fulfillment of this, you know, this warning that we've been given. So it's kind of a call to arms as well as a reassurance of the veracity of God's word. 
I think you're absolutely right. And again, that that passage that you keep referring to in 2 Timothy 4 is uh, verses 3 and 4. So the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching and having itching ears and keeps going from there. And that's that's the guarantee. When I read this here recently, earlier this year, it's like, ah, that's why Joel Osteen still has a church. That makes sense. It's because like yeah. I know about the itching ears thing, but whenever you see these ministries or these uh, I guess musical conglomerates as they could be easily yeah. described now where there's no theology in their words. It's just kind of feel good boyfriend, Jesus stuff. It's like, it makes sense that they're selling, selling millions of records. It just makes sense. And it's like their judgment's coming as well, because I forget uh, what part of Matthew, but it's like these false teachers and false prophets, they are like trees that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's kind of a crazy guarantee that that's coming. Yeah. So it's like, guys, they're come up and it's coming. So don't worry about it. One thing I do want to shift to, this is a little bit more of a personal subject matter for you, but you bring this up in the ever loving truth is I guess this concept of tokenism. So as the American church, as a forthright kind of loving, empathetic church, there are ministries that are doing racial reconciliation wrongly. Uh, they're they're kind of ignoring James too and the sin of partiality and things like that. But you have a very interesting quote because again, you you just barely mention it. You don't do a whole section on it. But it's I am, however, increasingly sensing that the goal is not saving souls, but presenting a more diverse image to the community. And so conservatives love to point out when Apple does a commercial where they pretend their board of directors is a bunch of women of color. And in reality, it's just a bunch of old white guys, but it's kind mm -hmm. of the same thing that you have these churches that will, you know, they'll bring in that, you know, token black pastor, or they'll have that token person on the board. And it's like, wait a minute. Like the point is not the way the picture looks. The point is whether or not the gospel being preached is accurate and full throated. And for you, you've talked about this a lot. You've, you've talked about it in your books. How do you feel about this idea of tokenism? Because, you know, people all the time, like you're, you're the subject matter of Reddit boards, Vody, whether you know that or not. Hey, why do white evangelical reform people love Vody Bauckham so much? Like it's this idea to where it's like, well, because he's awesome, because the stuff he says is really great and I can apply it directly to my life and to the spreading of the gospel throughout the communities. Maybe that's why it has nothing to do with the level of melanin in his, in his skin, but Hey, I'm, I'm getting way off into to left field here. Cause I'm getting fired up, but talk to me a little bit about tokenism. Cause it absolutely just fires me up and just drives me nuts. Yeah. So when we talk about pluralism, I talk about pluralism in the book. I talk about a couple of types of, of pluralism, right? Uh, there's an objective pluralism, you know, um, the pluralism that says America is, a, you know, a, a multi-ethnic um, nation, right? It's just objectively true. But but then there's cherished pluralism. So we go from America is a, a multi-ethnic nation to America is better because it's a multi-ethnic nation. And churches are better when they're multi-ethnic churches so a church that has you know more ethnicities is superior to uh, a church that has fewer ethnicities and so you know you'll get guys um, from you know podunk nebraska where their town is 98.7 percent white yeah. and they're beating themselves up because their church is not as multi-ethnic as you know somebody's church in say houston or or dallas or new york or, or whatever right um because of this idea of cherished pluralism this idea that says you know if you're really christian and, and if you're really doing what the lord wants you to do then your church will and i love the way that you know your church will reflect heaven right <laughs> and in heaven, there's going to be people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. Well, you know what's interesting about that? It's real easy to talk about that when you're in America because America's multi-ethnic. I live in Zambia. Yeah, Zambia, Zambia is homogeneous, right? So you don't have multi-ethnic. You don't have many multi-ethnic churches in Zambia. Like you, everybody's black, right? Yeah, because 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 that's Zambia and it's not America. So does that mean that the church in Zambia is inherently inferior because it's not multi-ethnic? You know, I mean, again, it becomes incredibly problematic um, yep. from the get-go. But it's a very American 
problem. Yeah, it gets it's, really it's, awkward. Yeah, it really does. It really does. When I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma where the predominant race in Oklahoma is white, but the city I grew up in, Lawton, is a multi-ethnic city because we have a Fort Sill, the army base. We've got yeah. Goodyear there. And so there's a lot of different types of folks. So I grew up, like I saw a picture of my sixth grade class. There were probably 20 kids. There were probably eight white kids, six black kids, a couple of Asian kids, a couple of Native Americans. And it, we didn't look at them as like, oh, that's my Native American friend. It's like, that's Joe. I like Joe yeah. because he's awesome and he's good at baseball. And so it's just like, it's only whenever we get older that we get inculcated into these ideas of, you know, uh, oh, well, he's this because of this upbringing and he's this because of that or whatever. But it really brings into the discussion something that you talked about before, uh, ethnic Gnosticism. And so you did something, I think it was for founders uh, a few years back where you talked about ethnic Gnosticism, which seems like a big, you know, difficult phrase to understand, but it's basically this belief system that people, because of the level of melanin in their skin, somehow allows them to have a higher understanding as to whether or not something can be categorized as racist. And so it's this, yeah. it's this mystical idea that this person has more knowledge on a particular subject just because of how they look in a picture. And so talk to me a little bit more because, I mean, you did a whole hour on ethnic Gnosticism. If I can remember, I'll put it in the show notes. But how does ethnic Gnosticism kind of work into really everything that you talked about in the ever-loving truth? Yeah, um, that's interesting. I, I, I never, never, never asked that one. But um, I think when you when you talk about the idea of pluralism, I think you got to go back to the idea of pluralism. When pluralism becomes the be all to end all, um, when when pluralism becomes something you know that's that's cherished, um, inevitably what that means is there is a heightened valuing of minorities, right? Um, because again, pluralism by definition means that whatever, you know, the majority of, of something is, um, we have other things that are not like it, you know? Um, and when we have other things that are not like it, and when we're seeking those other things that are not like it, we put higher value in those other things that are not like it. Um, and I think in the American context, that means, um, you know, ethnic minorities. And I think the idea of ethnic Gnosticism is really sort of the, the, the byproduct of us putting the value in those things that are not like the majority and basically seeing them as bringing something that makes us superior, that makes us better. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's hugely problematic, and so now that's why we have all the discussions about lived experience, um, mm. you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I, again, now we're moving in the direction where, when you have sexual minorities, um, which is again an interesting turn of phrase, right? Sexual yep. minority, not sexual deviants, <laughs> but sexual minorities, right? Yeah. Um, and and now that becomes part of the whole pluralism narrative. Um, and so now you have to have, you know, people who are part of the alphabet mafia having their input, you know. Um, but again, once you've decided that these values of, you know, pluralism and relativism and tolerance um, are the foundations upon which you're going to build your culture, then it's inevitable that we we end up where we've ended up. Well, we talk about building culture and you also mentioned lived experience. So here's the thing. If you build your culture on the lived experience of individual people based on what they look like, that's problematic. I'm a good example of that. In terms of my background, I'm Irish, which is pretty easy to see because I have no melanin and, uh, you know, I have this red beard and I, I look like yeah. I should be clicking my heels together as I walk, but also I'm Choctaw Indian. So it's like, wait a minute, <clears throat> my, my Indian yeah. relatives and ancestors rather, like we enslaved people and we were enslaved. If you want to be depressed, look at how the Irish were treated by the English and how they were treated once they came over after the potato famine. It wasn't a pretty picture. I can say yeah. that I was not really valued. So someone will look at me as if, hey, you have this unearned superiority because you're white. And it's like, 
not play it. Like that's, that's not, that's not how I grew up. Like this is a very different idea because what you think my life has been like, you think that I woke up on third base thinking I had a triple. I woke up with no assumptions about where I would end up on the base pass as it were, but we're rounding to a close here, Vody. So this is going to seem like an awkward add on to the end of the interview. And it's just going to have to live that way. But that wraps up our discussion of the ever loving truth guys that is in the show notes, go and check it out. And it's fun to say the ever loving truth. So I'm saying loving L U V I N apostrophe. So That's right. the ever loving truth, <laughs> but I want to talk briefly about manhood because hopefully we can set this up later to have a more deep discussion where we can dive into Family Shepherds, a book that I've recommended on the show about a thousand times. I think a thread that runs through everything that we've discussed today is the abdication of manhood by the modern man, whether that is a pastor that is effeminate, whether that is a passive leader of the family, you know, that guy that's a spiritual thermometer and not a spiritual thermostat, but We'll leave it specifically to the church in terms of manhood. I think that the church has done a piss poor job of modeling to men and catechizing men in the ways of biblical manhood. So now every man just gets to self-initiate into their version of what they think masculinity is. So chasing women, four-wheel drive trucks, hunting and eating beef jerky, all things that are great but things that don't make you a man. And then we get to this point where our family's falling apart. Our wife hates us. Our kids have rejected us. We're losing our business. And then we run to the church and we expect the pastor to model a way out, but he doesn't know how to even explain biblical masculinity, much less model it. So to save me from preaching, you go, give me your thoughts. Yeah. I, again, if you go back to this idea of pluralism and the ideas of tolerance and the ideas of relativism, relativism, especially if you look at it within the context of this neo-Marxist ideology. Um, manhood is oppressive, right? And yep. because manhood has been defined as oppressive, because it's been defined as toxic, um, we, we've been trying to figure out a way for men to not be masculine while simultaneously being everything that men have to be in order for society not to fall apart. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. Um, nope. You know, as, as we say in Texas, that, that dog won't hunt, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, we want for men to not be toxically masculine, but then whenever some tragedy comes, if a mm -hmm. man doesn't stand up, right, and play the man, then we point the finger at him, you know, because he's weak and because he's failed, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we want men to, to again, you, you can't have it both ways. And I think that we expose the lie when we point these things out. For example, you know, anyway, th th there's a thousand different, you know, know. examples that we can point to. Um, of the way this sort of manifests itself and works itself out. But at the end of the day, um, the world needs men. At the end of the day, God designed us the way that he designed us. And he did that for a reason. There is a huge difference between men and women. I'm grateful for that huge difference between men and women. It means that there's a responsibility that's placed on our shoulders. Our shoulders are broader for a reason. We're designed to carry more you know, physically and spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And the world needs us to do that. And I think one of the things that people like about The Everloving Truth is that it's a very masculine book. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 don't, I don't shy away from that. I don't apologize for that. Um, I lean into that and I, I hope people enjoy it. I think that they will. I think that they certainly will enjoy it and benefit from it. But dadgummit, if that didn't sound like a cliffhanger for our next discussion where we're going to really unpack biblical manhood, have we done enough to prove to you that we need to have another discussion to go deeper? Oh, yeah, we need to do that. All right, guys, we made it happen. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, um, just, you know, go out, get this book, um, help put it on those lists that people don't want it on. And, mm -hmm. um, you know. We'll all smile at that. <laughs> We're going to do our best to be disruptors and get this book on those lists. Vody Bauckham, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with the one and only Vody Bakum. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to his website, so where you can check out all the stuff that he's done. I've got a link to three different books. So the book that we talked about today, The Ever-Loving Truth, but also Fault Lines and Family Shepherds. And then we mentioned ethnic Gnosticism in that entire speech that he did a few years back. That YouTube video is here in the show notes as well. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Per. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Facedown Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.